Okay, uh, Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. And behold, a man came up to him, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Okay, look, I mentioned to you last week, sort of in preparation for this week's discussion, that when God created mankind, He gave them two things. He gave them each other, and He gave them the garden. In other words, He gave them sexuality in general, and possessions in general. So that when you get to the third chapter of the Bible... Uh, Genesis chapter 3, where it starts to talk about the entrance of sin and dysfunction and mayhem into the world, then what happens is, is those two realities become the most problematic. Uh, sex and money, my friends, <laughs> will be consistently things that offer themselves to human beings as a very efficient way to mess up your life. Why? Because they go so deeply to who we are. They communicate something very profound about who we are. You know, the, ancients, uh, the ancient Christians used to say that the Christian community was marked out because they were promiscuous with their money and stingy with their sexuality. Uh, our culture has reversed that entirely. We have now become promiscuous with our sexuality and stingy with our money in many ways reversing exactly what God's design was for us. So last week we talked about sexuality. This week we turn to the question of our money. And we have to look at the sin that is defined as greed uh, uh, in, the, in the Bible. And we're going to use this little story of the uh, rich young ruler to sort of unpack this. And I just want to say three brief things, as I am sort of want to say, about this lesson. First of all, we're going to see that greed is hard to see. Secondly, we're going to find that greed is hard to deal with. But then thirdly, we're going to find that greed can be healed. Okay? All right, so first of all, greed is hard to see. The peculiar nature of greed is that it's one of those sins in the list of sins that occur to us in the New Testament that Jesus talks about that has this peculiar ability to make you not notice that it's working on you. Okay? Um, it has the ability to kind of mask its own presence. And the text that I always use to sort of illustrate this comes from the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, you have these very famous passages that Jesus is talking about when he talks about, you know, you've heard it said that you're not supposed to murder. Well, I tell you that even if you hate someone in your heart, it's the same as murder. 
And then he goes on to say, well, if you, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery. But even if you lust after someone in your heart, it's the same thing as committing adultery. It's a really amazing sort of list. But then, right after that, he looks and says, but beware. Watch out, he says, for all kinds of greed. Because the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is bad, then your whole body is bad. And he says, eventually ends up by saying, wherever your heart is, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. What I think is interesting about those commands is that Jesus has to warn us to watch out for greed. And it's really funny that there's no uh, other sins in that list that he makes that he has to like tell you to watch out for. <laughs> um, I mean, if you think about it, you kind of know if you're committing adultery, right? Uh, I mean, presumably no one's surprised by that moment. You know, um, wait a minute, you're not my spouse. Um, you know, it's fairly clear when adultery sort of shows itself up. Greed, though, on the other hand, has this ability to make you think that it's actually not a part of your life. Why? Well, because sex and money, our, our sexual existence and the idea of our possessions goes straight into our hearts. They define who we are so fundamentally that they end up being the very things that, that enslave us. Sex and money have an ability to mask themselves as gods. I would even argue that sex and money feel like ultimate powers. Last week I tried to mention to you the fact that sex, sexuality in general, is a powerful motivator. Uh, the idea of sexuality in many ways sort of calls to mind transcendence. Sex feels like um, transcendence. It feels like graduating into another world. Guess what? The big paycheck, uh, the big bonus that you're going to get here in a few years after you start the workaday world can feel exactly the same way. Now, a lot of you don't believe me on that one because either you're not married or you don't have a big job. But I'm telling you, the idea of actually cashing in on something, getting the big checks, very interesting. I always talk to my um, uh, uh, pre-marriage counseling folk about this all the time, that typically for men, they look at, they look at money as a conquest. A man walks into his house and pulls out the bonus check and is like, huh, see that, honey? Look at that. Da, 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 da. See what I did? You know, it's kind of like showing off or something. The woman tends to look at money, though, as more of a source of security. It's like, oh, thank goodness we can pay the bills this month, right? And I, you know, he always ends up feeling deflated on the other side because he didn't get the attention that he wanted. And he pitches a fit about it, and well, that's a whole other discussion for another time. <clears throat> but the bottom line is there's an exhilaration that comes in both of those things. Money and sex can bring about the same amount of exhilaration in people and this is the reason why it blinds you. Listen, let me lay forth a universal principle. If the statistics are true, and, and this one is one that's utterly consistent across the board, the more money you make, the less money you're going to give. It is an absolutely verifiable statistic that the more money that you make, the less money you're going to give away, which is completely opposite of what we think. I tell this story as often as I can because it was so vivid for me, but a number of years ago, I was at a conference with two other pastor friends of mine. And these pastors were actually ministers of churches that were very, very different. Uh, the one guy uh, was your sort of typical, you know, suburban, wealthy, upper crust, uh, uh, predominantly sort of upper middle class kind of church. The other guy was uh, an African-American friend who pastored a church that was very much in an inner city context. Uh, all of his constituency, all the people from his uh, 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 church were under the poverty level. 
Um, and the two of them were talking about the issue of how you talk about finances to your congregation. The guy who came from the sort of upper middle class church was talking about a study that they had recently done at their church about the nature of giving in their church. That is how much people gave. Um, and he quoted a statistic. He said, when we did this study, we were actually shocked to find out that the annual giving of our families, if you sort of do, take an average, take up all the money people give and divide it between the families that are members of the church, was about $1,200 a year. $1,200 a year per family were giving to that particular church. Well, as soon as my friend said that, the guy who was pastor of the inner city sort of a definitely lower econ economic class uh, church started freaking out. <laughs> started shuffling the seat and going, no, 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 you mean that they give $1,200 a month? He goes, no, actually $1,200 a year. He goes, oh, no. He goes, that, that, there's no way that can be right. And he said, why? Why are, you, why are you freaking out so much? I asked him, I said, What's, I said, why are you reacting this way? He said, we did the same study at my church about six months ago. The average family giving of those people, of the families in my church, was $1,700 a year. Now look, y'all, <laughs> that is an, I could give you a thousand statistics that show that same thing, that greed will always make you think that you ain't got it. It makes you think that you're not. Is <laughs> a way in which money tends to mask its own uh, existence. And Jesus looks and tells this guy who comes to him that the ones that, that, that step one to having the kind of life that he knows he was built to means uh, to, to, to live is going to begin by giving it all away. It's a very interesting exchange that Jesus has. You know, this guy looks up and says, what, do I, what must I do? And Jesus looks at him and says, you know, I know you think that you're being obedient. And he gives him a list of the Ten Commandments, a summary of the Ten Commandments. And the guy looks and says, you know, all these things I have, I have kept since my youth. I've done all these things. I've kept them all. And Jesus looks at him and says, then what I want you to do is I want you to go and sell everything that you have. To sell it all. Jesus comes and clearly gives this guy an application to his own heart about how greed is blinding him. Now, small little footnote at the bottom of the page of the notes I hope you're mentally taking on this. Um... Jesus is not making a blanket statement about riches. There are plenty of other cases in the New Testament where he gives very different commands to other rich people. You know, Zacchaeus is actually told to go and give away half of what he has. Uh, Jesus never tells Nicodemus, a rich man, to give all the money that he get, has away. And Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 13 that even if I give everything that I own away, it's, and, I, and yet I have not love, it profits me nothing. So, in other words, Jesus is looking and saying, this is, don't take Matthew 19 and say, and say, therefore, poverty is next to godliness. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that this is a peculiar way in which this sin has the ability to uh, blind you. There's a study done by uh, Craig Bloomberg in Neither Poverty Nor Riches, a Biblical Theology of Possessions, that says that for every warning in the New Testament that you get about sex and about illicit sex, you get ten regarding greed and about bewaring of how you deal with your money. Uh, and so Jesus is looking and saying to this guy, you've got to be careful of this because your riches will end up blinding you. Why else does he look and say uh, to this guy that it's easier for a rich man to pass through, or for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom? He's looking and saying that it has a way to keep you out. Small little note again of application for us at Ole Miss. 
I don't know a lot of other campuses in the, the world of college life that worship beauty and money like we do. I think you're naive if you don't think that we're at least in the top <laughs> echelon of campuses that worship those two things. And there really ought to be something that makes us pause for a moment while we're at Ole Miss and say, this place is hardwired to keep me out of Jesus' kingdom. With those two things being so deeply valued, especially here at Ole Miss, it at least deserves me to, to while I'm here, being a little self-reflective about them <laughs> and doing a little bit of thinking because greed is hard to see. That's my first point. Secondly, we also find that greed, therefore, is also just as hard to deal with. It's hard to work through with us. The problem with this man is, is that he has equated his riches with his morality. He believes that there's a connection between the easy life that he has and the fact that he's probably a good person. You know, when we're, all, when we're growing up, um, we, we were actually were fed this from a very early age. I don't know how many of you were raised on the sound of music. Have you ever grew up watching this? I don't know what it was, but my children were addicted to this show when they were little. And I, I'm not sure that's just because it was a musical and that it had children in it, but we watch this show incessantly. My wife especially can recite most of the lines uh, as they go along and sing the entire song. For a while, my children could sing the entire score, you know, uh, you know Rodgers and Hammerstein on Parade or whatever. Um, but there's a very interesting exchange that happens between the oldest daughter, uh, Liesl, Liesl, is that her name? And the handsome young, um, oh no, what's his name? Don't act like you don't know, what's his name? Rolf. Rolf, that's right. Um, Rolf, that's right, Rolf. Um, remember the song that they're singing? But some, no, 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 that's the wrong character. It's, the Julie, it's Julie Andrews to, um, to, to, uh, to Baron Von, to the Von Trapp father, what's his name? Captain Von Trapp. Bear with me. This is like the worst illustration anyone ever launched into. We're going to edit this one out of the podcast. Um, do you remember, though, the song that they're singing to each other when they finally admit their love to one another? They're looking at each other, deep in each other's eyes, and you know, they sing, you know, somewhere in my youth or childhood, what? I must have done something good. What, what, what is it that I did to deserve all this wonderful love and to feel all this wonderful happiness around me? You know what? When I was a child, I just must have done something good. Now look, as silly as the musical makes it sound, that's exactly how we think. And that's exactly how this rich young ruler thinks. He looks and says that there's got to be a connection between what I've done and the things that I possess. And that's one of the reasons why greed is so hard to deal with. Because there's an unresolvable, unresolvable tension between the gospel and greed. You see, this man came to ask about eternity. He came to, um, to, to, to sort of deal with what is it in my life that's missing. I'm looking for something that I can do. What do I lack? What can I add to my life? What can I supplement my life with in order to really be happy? And Jesus begins to expose his view. Your biggest problem is, is you think that you're rich because you're a good person. And the truth of the matter is, is you're not. And so all of a sudden Jesus looks and says, well, I tell you what, if you think that you've done so well in these commandments, why don't we have a pop quiz? <laughs> Let's take the first commandment. The first commandment is about not having any other gods before me. And you know what? You've made a god of your money. So in order to follow me, I want you to take it out, sell it all, and then come and follow me. And he goes away sad. 
And Jesus sort of starts thinking out loud as he watches the guy walk away and says out loud, he's like, you know, I'll tell you what, it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven. That guy would rather have his riches than admit what I'm saying about him is true, that he needs me more than anything else in the world, especially his easy life. And all of a sudden the disciples are kind of freaking out. They're like, um, excuse me, Jesus. <laughs> um, if that guy doesn't get in, because the disciples were thinking the same thing. Look at how wealthy he is. God has clearly blessed that guy. And the disciples did the math. They were like, if he ain't getting in, I don't have a chance. And so they asked their question, Lord, then who can be saved? And don't you love Jesus' answer? He looks and says, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, he says, look, the gospel is not something that you add to your life. It's not, well, you know what, I'm going along, but I really feel like the spiritual part of my life could, could use a little toning up. I think I'll go investigate this Christianity thing and kind of brush up on my morality. <laughs> That's not the way the gospel works. And Jesus is exposing that in this guy. Um, and he comes and he gets very personal and, interestingly enough, very concrete. Uh, in other words, Jesus doesn't look and say, you might want to start thinking about your money. No, he gives something very specific. No, you need to go give this away. Note to self, y'all. In dealing with our greed, it helps to deal very concretely. Something specific. Things that you say to yourself, I'm going to do this and make this an absolute principle in my life so that this greed does not begin to, define, uh, to uh, deceive me and I become self-deceived. Okay, so that brings us to the last question. So is there, is there a way through this great problem? Is there a way in which we're healed of greed? Well, there's a great version of the story. This story gets told a couple times in the Gospels. Uh, and in the Gospel of Mark, the same story comes out. And in the little passage there where the guy looks and says, all these commandments I have kept <laughs> since my youth, it says in Mark. The passage there says in Mark that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Isn't that interesting? We didn't get that in the Matthew passage. But I love that little line that Jesus looks at this man and it's out of love that he considers the way in which he's acting. That he looks and goes, oh, you are self-deceived. You're, you're in a prison of your own making you've, that you've created from your own greed. And Jesus is looking and saying <clears throat> that the difficulty under the objections that we have towards our money and our life is not necessarily the stuff that we would think. The real problem is a heart problem. That we're looking and saying that we're in a power struggle with God to believe that we can satisfy ourselves with the things that He's given us to point us towards Him and not for the thing in Himself. We have worshipped the created instead of the Creator, the Bible says. And Jesus is trying to expose this. Okay, so what's the remedy? <laughs> Bear with me. The remedy for greed is Jesus' statement about the sovereignty of God. I want you to think about this. The disciples look up and say, if that guy on the base of his merit is not getting into heaven, we don't have a chance. Who then can be saved? Jesus' answer is, with God, all things are possible. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying what this means is if anybody actually makes it into heaven, it's because God did it. Somewhere at the heart of Jesus' desire to help people with their greed has got to be a sense that He is the one responsible for my, my salvation and not 
me. Look, historically speaking, if you want to look at the theology of the church, there are those, and I would certainly be the first to admit to you, that those of us from what we would call the Reformed tradition, this is Reformed University Fellowship, RUF, in case nobody told you that, the Reformed tradition has made a very big deal about what we refer to as the doctrines of grace. And people wonder what we mean by the doctrines of grace. They mean the doctrines that protect the fact that God is the one who is at work in salvation despite our sinful efforts to take the credit for salvation ourselves. And Jesus is, I think Jesus is looking and saying, you'll never heal your greed until you begin to realize that I'm the one who is at work in you. I'm the one who brings salvation. You, on the other hand, are more helpless and hopeless than you could possibly imagine. But I am more gracious than you could ever dare dream. And that one principle, as it sort of digs its way inside of our souls, is the very thing that begins to erode our greed. Because the truth of the matter is, when we're trying, when we're on a pattern of self-salvation, when we're trying very desperately to keep our life nice and tidy and keep it all together, no wonder we hold our possessions. Because our possessions become the very expression of our safety. I'm okay because I have these things. And Jesus is coming along going, no, you're not. And you never were even, even before you had those things. The truth of the matter is those are my gifts to you to point you towards me. The truth of the matter is nothing makes sense unless you come to me humbly in the same way that the humblest of poverty-stricken Christians would do. Jesus levels the socioeconomic playing field and I'm not suggesting any political ramifications on the base of that, except to say that he's explicit about the fact that in his kingdom, values tend to be reversed. The poor get it. Not that they're more righteous. They're not. That's to miss the point. But the poor get it quicker because they don't have a lot of things clouding their vision. They know what it means to be dependent. The wealthy, though, who become self-satisfied, are those who actually look at Jesus' message and say to themselves, well, you can take this to extremes, I guess. But Jesus is saying it's only when you begin to get a glimpse of my sovereign initiative in salvation that you begin to be relieved of your greed. Because I'm the one who has you kept. I'm the one who holds you. If you think that your salvation is up to you, you're going to try to take credit for it, and therefore you're going to hoard everything that you have. But when I convince you that I've given you everything, you're going to hold your possessions with open fists at this point. And you're going to be able to be okay letting that stuff go. Look, I think there's a couple of great keys here um, of, in terms of practical application. And I'll finish with this and we'll have a time of, of questions and uh, interaction here if we could. Um, first thing is, one of the things that Christians have learned is, is that Jesus has made me rich. Spiritually speaking, Jesus has made me rich, and therefore I can be um, <laughs> I can be a regifter. Y'all remember that Seinfeld episode? <laughs> you know where Seinfeld is wrestling with this idea of you know can I actually take a gift that was given to me and and regift it, uh, send it to somebody else, then all of a sudden you get caught for that. Uh, you know, Oprah. I think Oprah was the one who said that this was the worst thing that you could do to someone is to be <laughs> is to be a regifter. This is a major social faux pas. You know, somebody gave you a gift that you're kind of like, I'll never use this, so you just wrap it up and give it to somebody else. <laughs> you got to be careful about that. You're gonna get um, gonna get caught. Well, the funny thing is, is the Bible actually encourages regifting. <laughs> um, 
In other words, the Bible looks and says, you've been the recipients of all these gifts. Your stuff belongs to God in the first place. Therefore, learn to give it, learn to give it away. Your stuff is God's. Listen, this is the first realization to deal with. It's very hard to get into the head. Your stuff is God's. I had this brought home to me in such a vivid way. For those of you that were, had to be, happened to be anywhere within the realm of contact with me during the month of April will know that we had this sort of house meltdown. I know it's a little warm in here right now, but um, our air condition broke in the month of April, right as it started getting warm. Uh, <laughs> we spent two weeks in an unair conditioned home and it was bad. It was really bad. Um, you learn how desperate you can get. But those of you that don't have any sense of home ownership have no idea what it costs to replace a dadgum home air condition. I'll tell you what it cost. It was about $3,600 is what it cost. And I remember the guy, tell, or Ginger, called me and telling me that and just sort of feeling this kind of, kind of sinking feeling of like, okay, we could sell one of our children into slavery, <laughs> something like that, um, whatever. Um, but the funny thing was is I was calling and complaining to my boss. You know, I have great respect for the guy that, I, that sort of oversees all the RUF guys in the state of Mississippi, uh, uh, Bebo Elkin. Bebo. He's it's just like Bebo. You know, it's just one name. Moses. Uh, Bebo. <laughs> Fabio. Just one name is all he's got. Um, but it was so funny. He was talking to me on the phone. He goes, I know, Les. I know how that feels. He goes, don't you sometimes just want to pray? Gee, I wonder why the Lord wanted to spend his money on $3,600 for a new air condition. Why would he want that, his air condition to break down? And I literally was on the phone just, and, and literally all of my kind of... <clears throat> just completely took the wind out of my sails. But you know what? And that was dead on. He's exactly right about that. It's a little more embarrassing for me because I actually, like I told you before, I do live on the good graces of the giving to people. This is all stuff that people has provided for us. But the truth is, it's true for all of us. The gifts that we have, the hard work that I did, come on, y'all. That came because God gave you those gifts to do that. We begin to deal with our greed and we begin to realize all my stuff is God's to begin with. But then the second thing that we've got to determine is that when we give things away, we end up making God visible. Look, y'all, one of the reasons why the world rejects our belief in God, if you believe in Him at all, is because they don't actually see Him tangibly working in life. The way in which God wants for other people to see Him is to see Him through you. You know, Jesus wants for us to be the kinds of people that feed the 5,000 because He fed 5,000. And so therefore, we're the ones who are able to do that, to be generous with what we have, to, get, to have the ability to not be possessive about our possessions and to hold those things with open arms so that if the Lord gives or the Lord takes away, we can still say, blessed be the name of the Lord.